Hello and welcome to Treasures from Malta, a podcast series produced by Fondazione Patrimonio Malti. I am Francesca Balzan, an art historian and an artist with a long connection with Patrimonio. I'll be presenting this podcast and meeting some of Malta's living treasures. These treasures are artists, historians or art collectors with some Malta connection. They're all fair game for the pod and we want to share them with you. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Treasures from Malta podcast. We're recording this episode at the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti offices. Now, you might catch the sound of an air conditioner, which I'm afraid, good sound quality or not, is indispensable at the moment. We're recording in very early July, but we are struggling through record high temperatures that have lasted many days. It's odd, this. After the last lockdown, we're back indoors in a sort of self-imposed lockdown, sheltering under an AC. Why am I rambling on about what's happening at the moment? Because I know that with these record temperatures, we've set a little milestone in history. And I can't think of anybody better to appreciate the recording of history in voice than the guest who is sitting right in front of me. It is my great pleasure to introduce musician and archivist Andrew Alamango. Good morning, Francesca. Thank you for having me. Really nice to be here. Thank you so much. Andrew, your roots are in music, but from the beginning you set your sights on the ethnography of music. Mm-hmm. And through your various award-winning projects, such as the folk band Ethnica, you have managed to revive Maltese folk music in a very appealing way for modern audiences. You've also created and directed long-term projects such as Magna's Men and Malta's Lost Voices to discover, digitize and preserve not only the first recordings of Maltese music, but also photography and the moving image. All this is driven by your curiosity to fill in the blanks in our recent history. Andrew, we've just heard an excerpt from Arajea, one of my favorite tracks from Ethnica's first album, Zifna, many years ago. I visualized this piece of music as a rich collage. Its backbone is a traditional Maltese child's poem, or even a ditty. And it's overlaid, at least for me, with unconventional and colorful new sounds, which are created with ethnic instruments. So this is push and pull of the traditional with the contemporary. Was it's a 
Habicha. Pellegrina, Pellegrina, Pellegrina. Habicha. years ago you formed the band and indeed the project Ethnica. Yeah. What was Ethnica all about? Well that's, that takes me back a long way obviously it's, uh, it's it's been a long time since we came up with the idea Ethnica or at least it was uh, in my head and then eventually came into realization. I think I always I always uh, first of all dreamt up these things a long time ago. Um, I think probably when I was at university, you know, and interestingly enough, at that time I had, I was studying musicology and history of art and Charles Camilleri was one of our lecturers, one of the first people who exposed us to non-Western music. So we, we would walk into class and he'd play an Indian raga or give us an, an example of a Arabic makam and non-Western, basically aspects of non-Western instruments, musical instruments and, and music. And after coming back from Australia, I think in Australia, it was also a bit of a soul searching, getting a perception of yourself and where you come from, going to the other side of the world from a little rock to a continent in the <laughs> Southern Hemisphere, where you come into a cultural diversity, which was uh, today, obviously, we have this cultural diversity in Malta, but this was well over 20 years ago in, in Australia, you know, which was already this, this um, buzzing and new, vibrant culture made up of people from everywhere. And, and I felt that it didn't really matter where you came from, but what were you contributing to that society? So I came back with these questions, you know, and also asking, like, where is our music and, and where are our instruments? Um, so there was always this search and always just coming into scraps of information and scraps of this and always realizing that, ah, oh, you, you just missed the last guy and you just, ah, oh, this guy would have told you. So and it becomes a question of researching, looking for, establishing personal contacts and trying to, to get a, a sense of what was before because much of this material was not documented, whether it was music um, or information related to traditional instruments. So Ethnica started mainly as a research project along with Ruben Zara and Juzigat and Steve Borch in those days with the idea of reviving and giving a new context to traditional rural musical instruments from the island. Now, these are, in a sense, uh, related to, uh, as you, we realize that they're not necessarily exclusive to Malta, but they are like bagpipes uh, and similar bagpipes are found in the Mediterranean. The cane flutes like the zumara and the tambourines are instruments which also have uh, relatives, so we like, um, and similarities in, in much of the Mediterranean from Sicily, Italy, Spain, Greece, North Africa, and even in other parts of the world. Um, so it was a, a started with looking into the rural culture for scraps 
basically. It was always trying to retrieve scraps of information, bits of information, and also physical and tangible things made of organic materials, you know, from skin and cane and all of this, and things which deteriorate. So actually you're left with very little evidence, you know. And uh, so it became this 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 initial journey of uh, retrieving that, trying to make sense of it, and then also seeing how all of this material can be used in performance because... You see, it's one thing writing about it, it's one thing documenting it, but I be- I've always felt that unless it is used and you come up with something that is going to uh, inspire people just as much as it impi- inspires you, the likelihood of it is that it will be forgotten and lost. And I think that's what has somehow has been happening. So when I look back into the 20th century, I realize that there has been, we have generally, in all aspects of the artistic fields, somehow have these gaps of reference to our past, no? Um, that there is a particular narrative that overrides everything and then somehow justifies everything, but then there are gaps of, particularly the 20th century, you know? And somehow people don't talk about generally 20th, when we talk about history, don't talk about 20th century artists, writers, musicians, this and the other. We tend to talk about the Knights of St. John. So, we, or, 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 you know, uh, something a few hundred years ago, which is relevant because they've left us the physical monuments, but the 20th century was much more relevant in terms of document, uh, documenting intangible heritage. Probably popularly, it's not perceived as having passed into the realm of history. It's too recent to be considered history. Although this perception seems to be changing to a certain extent. Yes, clearly. With I, people like you, of course. I, I think the perception is changing because now we, we have a, a nostalgia for the 20th century, I think. Let's talk about nostalgia. Um, to me, it seems that in the branding and even the content of Ethnica's production, whatever you do with Ethnica, you kind of reference fake nostalgia, but in an ironic way. There is this issue, of course, of fake nostalgia, always looking at Malta as the place of sun and sea and the night, the famous Maltese cross, which is not Maltese at all, incidentally. Are you doing that? We were well aware of the, the, the pseudo-folk culture, is what we call it, which was created in the 60s, 70s, post-independence. Now, a lot of things were created uh, in around that time to, 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 to create an industry and generate an industry to, to stand on. A, and maybe at that time it was kind of somewhat needed and relevant. And, uh, it's of a yeah. search for identity. Yeah, yes, a search for identity. A quick, quickly put together identity, perhaps. As yeah. Well. So, you know, we, we can create identity as we go along, you know, and these, these are things which are not fixed. An identity like language is something which is constantly morphing. Clearly, uh, we were trying to create a musical repertoire using uh, the sonorities of traditional instruments and that which we feel, you see, and then kind of on one hand nostalgic, but on the other hand, many of these sounds had gone totally out of our collective psyche, you see? So kind of recreating the palette here, of sonorities uh, which we could bring into our new world. No, so revalidating this through performance as musicians, and we were all looking for musical repertoire and realized that we had scraps and we could order things in a new way, which would make it more valid to us and also 
at least exposed to people to the to the good aspects of our tradition, and those things like uh, like the poetry of Franz Baldacchino al Bodai and you know his voice and Anna and the old poetry, which is still relevant. You know, there's there's I uh, I, I started to get exposed. I think through Etnica and through our concerts, I got exposed to a lot of people, a lot of aspects of tradition, which would have a lot of influence um, on 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 my future, basically the formation of future projects. Um, and Anna has, in fact, which came into, we started to expose this to a totally new audience. Franz Baldacchino would come and sing with us and then was invited by the president at the time, Guido De Marco, to the palace. You know, he was never. So totally new contexts were being created. At the time, in 2001, 2003, there was actually nobody, there was far less happening. Mm -hmm. And I think there was no bands really singing in Maltese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and Anna was still very much shunned, you know, and uh, except for within the circle. So uh, I think I did provide a turning point. In we a did way. provide a platform for all of this and a, and a bit of a turning point, yes. And, mm -hmm. and I think it also influenced a, a lot of bands which came later, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to take the credit, but indirectly, and in some ways directly. Yes, it was an influence on others. Yes, but that's establishing tradition. So yes, that's, that's exactly the it. The point yeah. you made, I, yeah, I yeah. absolutely have done it. Mm. I'm really curious about something else, and I couldn't find an explanation anywhere. Why is Etnica's name prefaced by an asterisk? So, yeah, uh, so we operated between 2001 and 2008, and every year it seemed to get more popular, more, more and more popular, and felt that we had to like present even an even bigger show. It turned into these these big shows called Ethnic Cafe. Uh, my friends Andre and Francesca were at the time learning flamenco in Spain. We lived together in Australia and then I came back to Malta. They went to Spain and then we put our heads together. We were at, together at university and always looking as artists, you know, to what what we can put together. Yes, because perhaps this ha hasn't translated well in this podcast. We're not talking only about music, but even about performance and dance. Yes. Which is yeah. brought in through I, I think the, the flamenco aspect, which is always questioned by a lot of people, but for us it was very valid because as artists we want to express ourselves through what we do mm -hmm. through our own practice you see 
Um, I think the, the flamenco aspect brought in a very strong element of, of how you perform and mm. how you transmit to your audience. But why perform flamenco in a Maltese context? Because we don't really have any connections um, there. Yeah, we don't, we don't even have a, 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 an official Maltese dance. Mm. Even that was created kind of thing. Not, not necessary to say that this is part of Maltese tradition or whatever, but again, we were putting together a bit of this, that, and the other, which maybe we thought would reflect us as a culture in the Mediterranean, which is now open to all these cultural influences. If you listen to music today, there's almost no question as to why did you bring in that sound and why did you, you know? Clearly, we're not trying to be purists here, but we were taking a bit of this, that, and the other and putting our practice in the thing, right? And I think Ethnica was successful in the way that it did uh, through the infusion of this energy, and I'm not saying it was musically necessarily brilliant, to be honest with you, but uh, I think it affected a lot of people, and, and, and people still remember us for these performances. Now, we stopped performing in around 2008. I, I felt the need to, to, to break off and, and do other things as well, because it was very time-consuming. Uh, to say the least, and uh, and then we regrouped in uh, 2015 mm-hmm. with this. This is why the new branding with the asterisk mm-hmm. um, as a, a much more reduced uh, version mm-hmm. of now six musicians and purely music performance. And and I think we also came back a bit more mature. There is less focus on the traditional instruments, though they are still present. Uh, much more. I don't know. I, I think it's just a bit more. Interesting now how we are doing it and more maturely as, as musicians, you know. And it was also set up as a, as a uh, small unit for, for, for touring. So we're really focusing on, on touring the band. Um, and since then we produced an album and some new songs. focus has always been Malta, but Malta and beyond, not just the Mediterranean, but even beyond that. However, as a musician, because you are a practicing musician yeah. as well, you've attended workshops and you continue to study in places like Cairo, yeah. Turkey and Crete. Yeah. I'm curious, what instruments do you play and why are you drawn to the musical traditions of Africa and the Eastern right. Mediterranean? Uh, it was that Anna... Um was a as an example of a uh, combination of eastern and western thoughts or non non western thoughts um 
And therefore, it's encouraged me to kind of look around the Mediterranean region. And uh, I, I realized that actually there are traditions, musical traditions, which are very rich that we are not basically exposed to, right? We tend to exist in our Western bubble because we have inherited operatic music and classical music and jazz and all of this. But outside of the Western world, there are many other musical traditions. So I ventured on, on out and, and started studying. I spent a year in Cairo studying in a place called Beit al-Aoud, which is the, uh, the house of the Oud, the lute. Then I went and I had a, a couple of very important masters in, in Turkey, in Istanbul, where I was attending school for a year and a half and uh, working on my projects, but uh, also studying at the same time. And being exposed to a culture, basically, which was very existent and was around in the Mediterranean quite a few hundred years ago with a troubadour culture, um, where you have the word, poetry, and the musical instrument accompanying. And I believe that our anne is the Homeric bard. The anne uh, is, 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 a, is a perfect uh, figure in the sense that he is the poet that has a very strong social role and responsibility. He has a foot in the past because he sings the, the songs of old and he has a memory of the past, but he's got a foot in the present because he can rhyme spiritual bronze and improvised words at the moment and express the moment. So he's still a very valid contemporary bard. He, he's a social critic as well, but he's also the one who can sing of beauty and can woo and, you know, he's got all these roles. And I believe that Anne, the Anne was always a, a, a local hero. In every village had this local hero who had the, the, the guy who either wrote his lyrics or he had the wit to improvise the words. So anyway, I, I um, got interested in the non-Western musical traditions. Um, clearly, these are not necessarily our traditions as such, but I believe that it helped me understand a lot of what was going on also in, in Anna. And I believe that uh, what is out there in the immediate uh, Mediterranean region uh, we, are, we are a hybrid at the end of the day. Anna is a hybrid. It is not an Arabic thing. It is not a Southern Italian. It's, it's really developed as a hybrid. And probably given the, the fact that uh, it was allowed to, to develop as a hybrid over a few hundred years uh, as a rural culture. Now, you question what else has developed um, as in, what kind of legacy has there been in terms, because so many people came and went, you know? And uh, very often we speak about the culture of a colonial power or a foreign um, power which was installed here, but far less about the local popular culture, which was far less documented. That's the problem. It wasn't documented, so we need to look to language. And generally, yeah. To our culinary yeah. history. And yes, yes, to, yes, yes. Um, aspects of our history which are undocumented yeah. but evident. Because it was, a, it was a very small culture and a small population, yeah. you know, and possibly uh, considered negligible as a culture vis-à-vis -vis the larger cultures in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so uh, this is it. This is why I ventured around the Mediterranean mm -hmm. looking for music and poetry and this and the other because I realized that there, there are cultures that have hundreds of songs. So, mm -hmm. you know, you go to a place like Greece, you go to a place like Istanbul, like people, like the, the, the strength of, the, of, of, of their musical repertoire mm -hmm. is just enormous, like it's vast. Didn't C you feel restricted by the fact that you couldn't speak the languages? 
In most of the cases, I could speak the language Did because you? because you I had Arabic. I had Arabic for three <laughs> years see. in school, and then I became quite fluent in Arabic. Then I started. I started being there studying Turkish because I was studying Turkish classical music and Turkish repertoire. So after three months, you know, it's like like this, and you know, yeah. So I think we're, that's a, that is a very uh, important aspect. I think of of who we are, the the fact that we are polyglottal, you know, mm-hmm. and that we can assimilate very Not necessarily well. Necessarily to the extent that you are. <laughs> But to go back to your instruments, which instruments you play? So, yeah. Multitude of them. Um, well, look, through ethnic, obviously, I, I started to, I, I was trained as a guitarist, right? And I started studying guitar. I always had a passion for guitar. My dad was a guitarist. Um, back in his days, I was brought up with my dad painting in the kitchen and, and playing guitar. So he inspired me definitely in that way. And then, uh, so stringed instruments, Generally, like guitars and 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 mandolins and, and the lute, now the Oriental lute, which is a fretless instrument, um, and then through ethnica, clearly I, I I had to apply myself to other instruments like playing these little flutes and uh, getting a bit more proficient and in, in in the traditional style of tambourine playing and building a repertoire with these kind of things. You know? I was giving workshops for kids in schools for a long time in, in traditional instruments, um, particularly in tambourine playing, and then for adults and, and young people, really in terms of how you can take this traditional instrument, apply a technique, and then apply it to a musical repertoire. You see, otherwise it just becomes a relic in a museum piece. So you need to really use this thing if you want to. Mm-hmm. And in your own practice, do you compose new music or do you integrate, for example, old recordings, which are by yes, other people? Yes, yes. I, I, think, I think, look, I, I think today as artists and as musicians, uh, we're all collaging. Mm-hmm. We're all collaging sounds and images and scraps from this and this and this. And I think it is about how you revalidate things through your collaging, you know, how you how you bring certain things more into prominence. Mm-hmm. Um for it to be uh, it's 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 hard to say that we are i mean what is new you know mm-hmm. well one avoids creating a pastiche of the past sure, creating sure. something new based and on these buildings to blocks. do things with taste yeah. i yes. think yes. is is very important you know yes. because what ethnica has been doing for uh, is rebranding and, and stylizing things you know and i i still i still find myself doing this with mm-hmm. uh, with the various uh, musical setups that we're doing that uh, So if you want to be cheesy, you can do cheesy with style, exactly. or it can be just naff. Yes, yes. No. With irony as well. So there's irony in it. Yeah. So yes, you have to have. It can be, you know, it's like so. Then these instruments start to be used in this way for, to create sonorities for particular purpose. Mm-hmm. You see. Mm-hmm. Now the video of the latest single that Ethnica released, which is called Lura, it was actually released last year in quarantine. Yeah. It shows a lot of footage, so we're now moving into the area of the visuals. Yeah. And this footage was sourced from the Magnazmin project. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Magnazmin, which is a project which yeah. is uh, created by you, essentially. You are the founder and yeah. its artistic director. Now, when we say Magnazmin, it translates uh, more or less into time machine. Yeah. That's the word. So rather than say... Uh, Magda Thazmin mm-hmm. you just said Magda Thazmin because it, it as a branding it's it made sense makes more sense <laughs> um, you've described Magda Thazmin as a community project in dialogue with technology science and art mm-hmm. so you've it's really multidisciplinary yeah. and that's where the machine bit comes in because of technology sure. presumably 
which aims to investigate how tacit and local knowledge and micro-narratives can be added to the grand narratives of representation in a previously occupied country. That's a big statement. Hmm. Andrew, are you trying to rewrite recent Maltese history? No, I, look, I, I don't necessarily think we, we're trying to rewrite. Uh, I think that, again, in view of the fact that we feel that there has been a lack of access. So, you see, through Ethnica, I realized that there was a lack of reference to traditional repertoire, lack of documentation, no songbooks. As a musician, you go looking for these things. Give me material mm. so I can reinterpret, no? So it was always about this looking, researching, and trying to find material that you can reinterpret for your own gratification, but then also putting it out. Um, so along the way, uh, different things came into hand, from records, tapes, and cassettes, and uh, different sound formats, but then you also have photographs. And, and then you realize that actually this is all documentation, right? Different formats of documentation. And this is what uh plus interestingly enough i was brought up as a kid with my grandfather's uh, gramophone which he bought from mm -hmm. new york in 1929 and a whole batch of records so i kind of i knew mm -hmm. about these these formats these very old formats and what how they you know we were brought born in the 70s you we kind of got the end of mm -hmm. these these analog formats before we went into digital uh, let's take one step back can you describe the Magna's main project and what it is you set out to do? Yes. So uh, Magna's main was uh, set up with this intention of uh, preserving content which is found on 20th century analog formats. Why? Firstly, I believe that the 20th century is the closest to us and, and the more relevant to us mm -hmm. as a people today. Okay, when we say analog formats, we're looking at so we're looking at imagery, sound, we're looking at sound, sound, sound and image formats, audiovisual. So you have sound, you have records of all speeds and sizes. You have a magnetic tape and audio reel, what they call open reel. You have cassette, um, then and vinyl records and all of that, and then. And there were also some other strange formats, but those are basically the sound formats. Then you have slide and photograph. Photograph goes back even to the 19th century. And you have moving image. Now we have moving image from the 30s till the 80s because it went from normal 8 to super 8 with sound and then VHS. Now, those are all formats which are obsolete. And we realize that much of our 20th century history, the popular history, was documented on these analog formats. Why? Because we as a people got in contact with the technology. When the technology became accessible to us, we started to document our everyday life, right? And it was not anybody else documenting our popular history. We documented our own history for our own reasons. It was not the industry who was dictating anymore what you put on record. We were putting conversations on, on, on tape. So very intimate, but also very real, very not in any way edited or trying to project a particular image. It's really authentic. Uh, yes, uh, uh, because we, we, we really took photographs of our families and filmed our families at the beach on holiday and sent messages to our cousins in Australia on tape, f really just for those personal, very personal, intimate reasons. No? So uh, I, you can say that our the 20th century popular history is documented on these 
formats. Now, these formats have become obsolete. The machines that play back these formats have also gone obsolete. So they are highly at risk. Even more is that we consider our own collections unimportant. Indeed. In comparison to what we are told is our identity and national narrative. No, out the macro. So there's a macro narrative. There's an overarching narrative, which says that you are Maltese because of this, this, and this, and you are Maltese because you are not this, right? But then, once you see what people documented around the world, because everybody, in spite of the cultural nuances and the cultural differences, has the same needs, and you realize that actually we document very similar lives in different contexts, but for the same reasons of being together, of needing to communicate with our cousins and, our, and keep communities connected, all right? So even when the Maltese uh, migrated, uh, the need was for the diasporic uh, communities to be in touch. So what would they do? They would uh, send hours of uh, audio tape, recording audio tape. They would send photographs. Interestingly enough, the technology uh, was uh, first accessible to those who had the money. So you had either a particular class that would have the cameras and the Super 8 thing and the, and the audio reels and the, you know, the, the, it's like buying a new Mac today. Who has the first Mac? Mm. The ones who can afford it, no? Yeah. <laughs> and even though that's kind of democratized a bit. But, um, and also that the Maltese, because they migrated when they were overseas, they generally came back with the technology before the Maltese. Mm -hmm. Okay, they brought it in. That's how it was. So there is a great spread of this material abroad. Clearly, clearly. I, I think with those cultures of people who migrated, uh, their history is written on these formats and exists, is dispersed all over the world. We have, you know, they were sending like, uh, transatlantic messages, you know, to, to America and, and simply because these formats were small enough to post, you see, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sent by mail. So you could send, uh, they didn't have Skype. Yeah. Telephone uh, was ex hugely expensive, so they would uh, send messages and inform. And also, it actually, the the these formats in the fifties and sixties were also very important for the development of folk music and traditional music everywhere. So, with the Maltese guitar playing, it also helped set up these communities of music. And Anna, for example, in Australia, this started developed. 50s, 60s, once this technology, obviously we had the wave, then people started coming back and forth, but then they could keep in contact and they started sending not only messages from family to family, but also recordings of Anna sessions and guitar is sending and playing back because then you could record and play back and some... It's remarkable. <laughs> Technology was very, very important for the uh, diaspora spread around the world. And, and as you know, the Maltese were first migrated to the Mediterranean in the 20th century. The first records of Maltese music, in fact, uh, 1931, record 1930, were done in, the first lot was done in Tunis. Why? Because there was a guy from Valletta, uh, the Jewish guy, Fortunato Habib, who 
thought that listen, there's like this twenty thousand Maltese in 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 Tunis right now. There's mm-hmm. another twenty thousand in Algiers. Eighteen sixty, there's about twenty thousand, yes. and they saw a potential markets. Mm-hmm of making records to sell not only to the Maldives here, but also to the diaspora elsewhere. Um, so, and then Damato came along and realized that actually there's, listen, there's the Australian market. And, and I am still seeing this when I publish something, you know, I see, still see these as potential markets. Of course. Of because course. we see the Maltese population as beyond that mm-hmm. which is in the island, no? We actually covered this in the last section of the Music and Malt Exhibition, yeah. which... Fondazione Patrimonio Malti organized and yeah. held in 2019. Yeah. So we actually looked at this aspect because yeah. it, re- it really is fascinating. But to bring you back to Magna's men and the collections that you find in Malta. Sure. Because we must be laden with these collections. Yeah. And they're all on the point of being thrown out of the house, probably, when yeah. people are clearing up and downsizing. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you come in? What does Magna's men well, do look, with them? Well, um, look, basically what we're saying is that... Uh, People's collective memories, personal memories, and individual memories are the micro-narratives which are also important um, and equally important to the macro-narrative and the overarching narrative. Because uh, I think we, we clearly we, we, we tend to give less importance to say, like, why is this important? This is only my family on the beach in, in the 1960s. Nothing special about that. This is not the Knights of St. John kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but in actual fact, when people realize that their own personal story and their own oral history, we're realizing now that oral histories are an important part of our history and identity. Um, that when people's stories, personal stories, have a fill in that gap mm-hmm. of who we are. Um, how the, people lived. How people lived. How pe- what people wore. Uh, is the story of the, the village, time, yeah. the community, the island, and a picture of the region. Exactly, the it changes in landscape yeah? as well and everything. Um, so it is, uh, it is very much a depiction of, uh, of all of that and uh, that we actually risk losing that because we have always considered too populous and unimportant. Now, when people realize that actually their own content is important, then they, they're happy to contribute and share it. So what we tell people is that if you share, we all stand to gain. If you keep material generally hidden away and you have every right to, because it was never necessarily done for, for, to be shared with others or with the public, most likely it will disintegrate and disappear and will be forgotten because we, we, uh, the formats are obsolete. The magnetic tape is disintegrating. The, the film and the chemical material is disintegrating and we tend to lose it. So one of the way forward is digitization. So we offer a service of digitization, right? Um, so what people do is, uh, we, we do not keep physical collections. We do not keep physical artifacts unless it's something really out of this. Well, you know? that's a great headache in its own right. Sure. Storage, storage. You know, we're always talking about digital yeah. storage is, mm-hmm. is a feat in itself. So we do not take in physical collections. We take in, uh, we, we're happy to convert people's collections of all these different formats and, um, give people back a copy. So we are, we provide access to the owner who can then, given a digital copy, spread it and share it with others to, to guarantee its uh, survival. We also keep a copy and we back up everything we have with the National Archives. We're going into agreement with that. And our interest as Magnus Min, even more, which, for example, the National Archives does not do, 
is that we are interested in the application of this material. So they license us. All they're doing is, is licensing us for the use of content within the scope of Magnetism and Activities, which is research-based. So we allow this material to be accessed for research and for artistic purposes, artistic purpose, um, projects. If there is a potential uh, in, in, in going into commercial uh, ventures and projects like publications, exhibitions, then we do so in agreement with the owner. Okay. Right. Is there a cut-off period for the material? For example, are you looking at digitizing up to the 70s, the 80s, and will you extend in time? Because hopefully this project will, it has already flourished, it will yeah. go on into the future. Yeah. Will you then look back and extend the period that you've decided So look, on? we, like, like I said, we, we try to uh, fill in that gap, which is not being collected. So they, the national institutions, for example, the PBS, DOI, they have come into their own archives because they have just been, doc- they've been documenting for all the 20th century government activity. At one point in time, like today, they end up with a huge collection which needed to be digitized to be preserved, otherwise we lose access to it. There was never, you know, we were never into this archiving world, which is, we're just coming into now. And so we realized that there was a gap in, in the people's history, and this is what we collect. So we also realized that there's an urgency. I mean, uh, UNESCO states that there is, I mean, they were talking about five or six years before we, Either the material is totally lost uh, on these formats or it becomes too expensive to retrieve because mm-hmm. the machines and the spare parts. I mean, even the past three years that we've been operating, we've companies that we've been dealing with in terms of parts for mm-hmm. uh, machines have closed down, down yeah. and it's becoming harder and harder mm-hmm. as we go along to retrieve content. So our aim is to deal with this urgency to save content of this of these physical analog 20th century formats. Now, there are other institutions that are collecting uh, digital content. That goes beyond me. Of course, there are there, there's, uh, there are people like Tony Sant who have, who have been working on national plans for uh, digital content and all of that. And I think Heritage Malta and uh, other, there's, there's many other institutions that are doing that. So I think that is kind of safe. That's, or at least as a plan and the vision for that. That is beyond the scope of Magnus Mim. I think our responsibility is that once we digitize, we have to guarantee the longevity of the digital content. Of course. Because that's the responsibility that we've taken on. Yes. So we've set up a foundation for that to make mm-hmm. sure, to ensure that the project will go on into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to, uh, luckily that everything is backed up with the National Archives, not mm-hmm. for access, but for preservation. Sure. So the cutoff period. Do you have a strict cut-off period? The cut-off period would be really uh, the last formats, which would have been VHS. VHS and cassette. It's 80s. 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 Because uh, beyond that, then you start to go, okay, CD. There's mm-hmm. a CD, there's issues with CD. That's even... We do take some digital content, but the idea of Magnesium is really to transfer mm-hmm. uh, from analog to digital. Now... Beyond beyond that, it goes into the digital world, and then like so, we're talking about eighties, early nineties. Sure. VHS, for example, was still being used in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So, if our listeners remember that they have materials squirreled away in some back drawer or something, and they might want to contribute it to the Magnus Min project, not in terms of physicality of it, because they retain that, but they want to to allow you access to digitize it. What should they do? 
Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend number one that they look at our website, um, magnasmin.com. We, uh, there's a contact form there, um, for people who want to contribute, um, there or bring in the collections. We, uh, usually ask people to assess what they have to go to the collection, give a description of the possible contents if they know, um, and its condition and the, the extent, the quantities. So we can assess what that will entail on, on our end. And then, uh, yes, with, with the people sign a, a, uh, an agreement where they consent to the, uh, uh, licensing of Magnusmin to, to use this content. And, uh, we give them everything back either by digital transfer, um, or USB. So they can visit the site and send us an email through there or even through info at magnusmin.com. And you have used this content quite extensively and in a really valuable way. For example, the Guido Stellon collection yeah. of photographs, a huge collection of photographs, which uh, you were uh, contacted about and you digitized a number of them, quite yeah. a large proportion. And since then, there have been two, at least two exhibitions, yeah. which really brought to the fore exactly how, how great this photographer was. Nobody knew about yeah. him. He was taking photographs as a hobby. Yeah. And thanks to Magnazmin and of course the person who owns the collection presently who was, you know, who had the foresight to contact you to digitize these yeah. photographs. They've been brought to the public and we, we can Absolutely. appreciate a new, um, a new but old, obviously somebody has paused sure. uh, for the graphic artist. But still hugely relevant today, you know, and, and, and I think, yes, as you say, it is a, an example of the gems. Mm-hmm. And I, I still feel we're scratching the surface, to be honest Who with you. Who knows what there is in yeah, homes. I feel we're scratching the surface. It was an example of, of uh, what could be possibly found. Um, and I'm glad to say that we are still uh, very much closely in contact with the with the collection owner and the heir mm-hmm. of Guido Salon's um, photography. Mm-hmm. And there is and has always been uh, a strong element of trust. Yes. I think without that, this project Indeed. In has fact, nothing. Andrew, I'll interject here and I'll say that one of the things that really impressed me about the website of Magnazmin is that you keep insisting about respect and giving yeah. dignity to the collections yeah. because even because of the intention with which these images yeah. or sound of yeah. of video of or yeah. moving image was captured because they weren't intended to be seen on a public platform and therefore Presumably, you're also very selective in what you yeah, show, yeah, making sure. sure that in no way um, does it put the original creator of this content sure. in a bad light or anything. And that is so key when you are um, when you are researching. You have to research with respect. So this was really emphasised, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see it. You know, the bonus of all this is, of course, you are bringing new material to the public, and we're able to study. I mean. Take fashions, for example, the evolution of fashions, how up to date we were with international trends, jewelry, hairstyles, you know, the way people lived. All of this is documented in these old photos, which nobody has seen. Which nobody has seen. So it's, it's not, it's the, the, the beauty of the photography, but also, as you're saying, the, 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 uh, the use of the content for, for research. Uh, In fact, we have somebody looking into the Guidon Salon collection. Literally for post-war fashion in Malta. There you go. In the in the uh, shops uh, that appear in the in the way people are dressed mm-hmm. and uh, and looking at the local how they local people how they dress and looking at the for- because mm-hmm. you know you have so it's a snapshot of the time you see, and I think all of these formats um, 
are a relevant snapshot of a particular era mm-hmm. in history. You know, whether it was a particular, you can see a particular style, a particular way of being, a particular way of dressing, a particular way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, so all totally relevant, yes. Yeah. So while we take a break, we'll send people off to look <laughs> into their cupboards and to look at old collections that they might have. Yeah. And we're back. Pictures and links are on the podcast section at www.patrimonio.org. And don't forget to give us a follow on the Treasures from Malta podcast pages on Facebook and Instagram. So, Andrew, going back to music, you've also set up the Malta's Lost Voices project and the label Filfla Records. Now, that's a hilarious name because Filfla is actually a big rock off the coast of Malta, which, Very is, small rock, actually. <laughs> which is not inhabited. And it was used for target practice by the British forces back in colonial times. And in fact, they really reduced its size as a result. But it is synonymous with the uninhabited and the wild. So to call your record label Filfla yeah. Records quite fun. You describe Filfla Records as a locally based label set up with the aim of making traditional and Maltese music publicly accessible. When was this label set up and what have you published so far? So Filfla Records was set up with this idea. I always had this idea of setting up a local, a locally identifiable kind of record label you know, that would put out heritage music and old recordings. And that was Filfla Records. Uh, it was set up in 2010 with the launch of the Malta's Lost Voices project. Um, the idea of Filfla was always there. It was. It's very iconic, I think, for us Maltese. It has people have different associations. We've never really visited. It's, it's kind of separate from us, but we we know this the outline of this rock, no? And interestingly, as you were saying, it was bombed, and I like the fact that Mintoff wanted compensation for that. <laughs> and there's all these stories about it. You know, it's just uh, that I used to go swimming, winter swimming, for a long time to where lapsing. It was always there. And I used to sketch I it and see, paint it. And right. I think actually many, many artists have painted it and mm-hmm. I've always found it very inspirational, you know? So I think it's something to do with our psyche mm-hmm. of looking out there. And it's well. unattainable because it's illegal yes, to actually land yes, on Filfla. Yes, yes, yes. And all these little stories that you hear, <laughs> anecdotes. So I always found it as a curious, and it's become like the, the icon for, for the Filfla Records. The idea of Filfla Records of putting out uh, old recordings in 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 high quality mm-hmm. uh, branded products because uh, I'm producing almost like collectors items here. Um, the idea started with the Lost Voices project in 2010, which was launched in 2010. Where along the years of Ethnica project and all of this, uh, I met various people who would come forward with these records of what they call shellac. Shellac being the the, the material. For, for the 78 RPM gramophone records. These dates too? Uh, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So these particular records, the first uh, activity of Maltese, uh, of recording of Maltese music happened um, in 1931-32 mm-hmm. with the advent of uh, electrical recording, which started like 1928-29, um, which made it more accessible and more viable. We had uh, gramophones which were 
uh, more economically viable, better quality. Um, along the years, people came forward with these records of Maltese music with names of singers and musicians, which I had never heard of. You know? So it got me very curious. And what is the music on the record? Where can I play these? Um, so uh, around 2010, I managed to research and collect through uh, various collectors and sources and locally and overseas, about 100, I realized it was 160 records, mm-hmm. which were made, recorded between 1931 and 32 by the local agents in Valletta, uh, including D'Amato and Fortunata Habib and Louis Carabot, between Malt and Tunis. And I realized, again, yet another part of our history, which has gone by, like, totally, totally forgotten. You know, I started to research the old newspapers and journals of the day and I would find the listings of records that would come out. Um, and I uh, thought that now is the right time to, to publish not only. So it's not only the songs, actually, but all the stories that accompanied these songs, the, song, the stories of musicians, the agents, the people who consumed the records, what they could afford, you know, how these songs got remembered, even by my father's generation, because then these songs eventually would be transferred to 45 vinyls in the 60s, still played in the Red Diffusion, and my father's generation, until even much younger, would still remember certain songs, Madalena, Shahnazwehnia, Fiarana, and they were popular, they remained popular from the 1930s. So now I'm guaranteeing, through Phil Flora Records and through the publishing of books and CDs and digital uh, access to this, uh, I'm, I, the idea is to guarantee the, the accessibility to this music for future generations, that they can be found online, that they can be found because they're preserved now as a database in the National Archive. You can go and research the whole thing. There's the music, the, 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 the stories, the images, and all the story of why and how Maltese musicians were for the first time recorded in 1931 and 32. And now, uh, along the years, Fufla Records has released a number of publications. The, the first was the creation of the database and the publication of a book with the double CD, all the music also found online. So I'm creating tangible products and intangible products in the sense of digital. Again, we again, still have this necessity to feel records and tapes. This is why I believe we have this retro vintage uh, culture which is coming back because of the need to, to feel the tangibility of these formats. You would take an LP before and go through the whole thing. I, I learned guitar just by putting the needle back and forth on the record and there was this tangibility all the time, no? So let's hear one of these lost voices. talking back to historical sources and you actually have a postgrad in archive sciences you are documenting history in your projects do you see yourself as a historian i think the general perception of a historian is is, is purely to 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 look back no and to interpret well. and to interpret yes yes uh, so so this is what I, I question a lot we're always looking back in retrospect so we always have as humans a sense of nostalgia for a time 
gone by. So it, it's almost you have to be a bit careful, kind of why are you looking back? For what reasons are you looking? Sure, it's important to look back as much as it's to look to the future because you need the reference to build your future. So and and the moment and the present is very relevant in that case as well. So a historian, yes, uh, as well as to be a bit of a visionary for the future. Mm-hmm. And you, you are an artist as well, but you're using the sources. And not an artist, just for exactly, but who for wants to build and yeah. collage a creative, you know, and present a romantic ideal or whatever, or dystopian, or uh, because I believe we we need to have reference to the to the to the past to build the future. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it will be done for us. Which brings me to my next question: Are you concerned about preserving future history? As it happens right now, for example, should an ephemeral Facebook post of a friend appear and it contains a photo, should that be preserved? I mean, it will disappear into the ether, undoubtedly. So, in actual fact, it is just as vulnerable as these old photos that you're finding and saving. Yes, sure. Uh, and these are the issues of uh, today's archiving. What to preserve, what is the criteria, what we should keep and not keep. You know, what, is, what it makes me think... Look, it's it goes beyond me a bit to 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 uh, to discuss uh, preserving the current moment because I think we are all our own self archivists and we all start now to think about how uh, what we have put out and what we have produced will be accessed and and, and in the future because that is becoming concerned because the digital world has its own serious issues. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, when I was studying at university, like doing my master's a few years ago, uh, I was reading that the Library of Congress states that certain important documents should be saved on vinyl. Mm-hmm. Because they tangible. know it will last a hundred years. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long digital formats, unless they're constantly being migrated in binary form, will, be, will yeah. go on to exist. So, you see, within my projects, I think uh, my responsibility is to make sure that that which is retrieved is somehow placed uh, in a place for preservation and access mm-hmm. in the future, even beyond me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it very exciting to dig out these things, and mm-hmm. then I have to somehow think of how they will be accessed in digital form. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, we're going to finish off with a final question. <laughs> if you were able to catch your own fabulous time machine and go back in time, what period and which context would you like to land in? I would actually like to to go back and and hear a bit of what they were singing and what they were playing, like probably around 400, 500 years ago, you know? Where? Malta and Gozo. um, To see what actually the rural voice was. What what did it actually sound like? What were they playing? How did people convene, you know? And really, what were they singing about? That's something I would like to listen to. Uh, What was that voice? And on that totally impossible note, I bid you goodbye, but not before thanking you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Francesca, for taking interest in all of this. I think yes, you've brilliant. shared your life and your mm. incredible projects, and I really encourage anybody who's listening to have a look at the website. Absolutely. And to contribute any um, material, any content that they might have. Yeah, look, much of this music uh, that I've been talking about can be can be found uh, on Filfla Records Music com. You can listen to all of these collections which are available for free listening. There's the Magnesmin website, uh, magnesmin.com. 
Um, there is Ethnica, which can be found on Facebook and Instagram. Um, again, Ethnica has its own Bandcamp um, page as well. So, yeah, I, I encourage people to go and, and have a listen to these things and um, because at the end of the day, it's for public accessibility. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are pictures and links to all we've discussed on the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti website under the podcast section. That's www.patrimonio.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on your podcast player as this will help others find it faster. And please do remember to tell a friend about it. Until next episode, goodbye. Goodbye.